Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's return to the Gospel of Luke. We've had a little bit of a, an interlude, very, very necessary, and so we had a few weeks between the first introduction to this great book and now this next message as we begin to look at all the things that Luke wants us to know as we work our way through his great uh, history, his narrative. You know, we're a very blessed people because we are 2,000 years past all of these events and so we have that much more redemptive history to look at and to see the faithfulness of our great God. But that wasn't the case when when it was the period of time between the captivity and, and then the time here that Luke records that God began to burst forth on the scene. And in order for us to sort of get our minds around it, we have to know what Luke is calling our attention to. We have to see the thematic elements that he's trying to trace a line through so we can trace them all through our study of the book. But then we also have to sort of immerse ourselves in, into the culture back then for a little bit to see what it must have been like for Israel when Jesus, this person Jesus, came on the scene. This would have been the history that they would have passed to their children and their children's children. And for hundreds of years, they passed down God's dealings with his people. And God had always manifested his faithfulness. He'd always made promises. And yet it was the obvious, repeated pattern of God's people to not believe it. To say, well... I know he's been faithful in the past. I can't really point to any time when he hasn't been faithful, but I'm not really sure he's going to be faithful again. And it's a shameful thing for us 2,000 years later to have that much more redemptive history and uh, to have prospered so greatly under the faithful hand of God and to have been offered salvation, having had it come tracing through the Gentile nations down to us. And we still, even though we have the intimate personal walk with Christ that we do, and even though His personal presence lives within us, we doubt. We don't sometimes believe the way we ought. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Israel at the time when Jesus burst forth on the scene? As I said, they would have passed the history to their children. And maybe if you began just 700 years prior to the time Jesus came, you would have heard that the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. And the sad, dark times that would have been passed to the children in that first century when Jesus burst on the scene would have been one of Israel's sad day of captivity when the northern kingdom fell and the Assyrians came in and sieged the city. And it it was a three-year siege and Israel would fall and by 722 B.C. the deed was done Isaiah had foretold it, had warned God's people in Isaiah chapter 10 that God would use Assyria as a rod to discipline his people. And then it happened. And that history would have been passed to the children of Israel. And then they would have been told about the fall of the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom under the godly Hezekiah himself. It prospered for a time and then Assyria collapsed with the fall of Nineveh to the Babylonian and Median forces, Medo-Persian Empire, giving way then later to the Babylonians. And they turned against Jerusalem as well. And that history would have been passed on. 
In those days, the prophet Jeremiah was speaking and in three separate assaults, beginning in 597 B.C. all the way to 581 B.C., the southern kingdom was finally crumbled. With the removal of the prisoners to Babylonia, the southern kingdom was finally collapsed and the shock of that captivity began to spread through God's people. Ezekiel and Daniel were prophets then and they were trying to minister to the Jewish people in a variety of ways. It was a difficult time because the captives were distraught, wondering if God had stopped moving. And for a period of almost seven decades, the Jewish people were occupied in the building of the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar II. It was, of course, an environment they were not familiar with. It was an alien environment. And in those times, captives lost hope, began to wonder. Ezekiel came along and he stirred up the people of God toward worship and toward prayer and memorial observances and studying the law of God. And for a time, Ezekiel was able to sort of stir up divine, the, the, the recollection of God's divine mercy and, and see the people begin to trust God. Some had their hopes brought to life that there would indeed still be a faithful remnant. But then they returned from captivity as Babylon fell they finally did get their chance to go into the land and they found it desolate and it was filled with Arabs and Samaritans and they weren't going to see the blessing of God even when they came back after that captivity until they had rebuilt the temple and so Haggai and Zechariah commanded them to rebuild the temple Haggai 1 says and even even after that had been done they weren't protected because the wall hadn't been built and so shortly after that for a period of 52 days Nehemiah took up the project and the wall was built and the children of Israel would have been told the story that Ezra led them in the ceremonies of national confession and commitment to God community life was restored non-israelites were expelled from the people and Priesthood was regulated and the foundations of their worship were laid once again. And it was peacefully done because the Persian Empire allowed it. It wasn't long, however, after the Persian Empire that Alexander the Great came on the scene and there were some revolts and he obviously conquered the known world, frankly, by the time he was early 30s. And in conquering the known world, he began to bring the idolatry of the Greek world into the Holy Land. Greek religion was different. It was superstitious. It was mystical. It was sensual. It, was, uh, it trafficked in, in esoteric and mystical philosophies. And it was forced upon the Jews. And so the Jews closed ranks and the scribes sort of formed into a group called the scribes and they were the guardians of Jewish tradition. About the second century BC they were aided by the rise of another separatist group called the Pharisees and they were the ones who meticulously practiced Mosaic law and they were guardians of the doctrine. Synagogue worship was raised up. And then a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came in that period of about 175 to 163 BC and he was determined to force the Greek culture upon the Jewish community and he polluted the temple and he forbid their worship. There was a family near Jerusalem 
uh, led by Matthias and it was called, uh, later it would be called the Maccabean Revolt. And they revolted and it was able to gain some concessions, but eventually put down. Even after that war ended, the Greek culture now had, con- had exerted its considerable influence upon the area and the province then around 64 BC came under Roman rule. Those are the histories that would have been passed to the children who were there in the first century upon the, about the time Jesus came on the scene. And that's just 700 years of it. By the time that the area came under Roman rule, the Roman Empire was powerful. And, and even though there were still the promises in Jewish tradition that God had a remnant and he would be faithful, there were people struggling to hope. So that even Josephus, the first century historian, said that by the time Jesus arrived, there wasn't a great anticipation of his arrival. It was a faint whisper that there would be a Messiah among many. There were a few waiting. Relatively speaking, a few. 700 years earlier, Micah had prophesied that Jesus would come on the scene and a baby would be born and 700 years after that prophecy, shepherds on a hillside heard about it, that he was in fact born. That would have been the history you heard. That would have been the history passed down. All your relatives had heard it. The generations had heard it. It was meticulously passed down. And by the time this period occurs, where Luke is recording the account, It is true that there were a few waiting and ready. And Luke makes the connection very clear. When Jesus came on the scene, he didn't want the Gentile world to think he was some new mystic. When Jesus came on the scene, he didn't want him disconnected from the people of God or the promises given to Israel. Luke is a Gentile writing to Theophilus, who's also a Gentile, and ostensibly this document and Acts are going to go out to the known Gentile world. He wants salvation to be clear, clearly connected to Jesus, and he wants Jesus clearly connected to the people of God and the promises of God. So all through his gospel, you're going to be able to trace certain themes. Themes that are intended to demonstrate things about God we should never forget. We do. We do forget them. It's a shock, isn't it? 2,000 years later, we forget them. How can that be? We have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ himself, the Spirit of truth, inside of us. We have all of this redemptive history. We're not dead yet, and every day unfolds a new day of redemptive history. And how long it will go, we do not know. That is in the secret councils of the Godhead. And yet here we are, reading Luke's account, tracing themes that are important to trace. And yet, like the people of God, we sometimes get so focused on earthly roots that we forget some of the themes that he's going to point out to us. I want to cover some of these. Some of you have asked me, you know, are we going to be right at the birth narrative at Christmas? (laughs) Right in chapter 2 at Christmas? Well, I don't know. You're, You're calculating it, aren't you? I mean, you're counting the verses and counting the chapters. Everyone would love it if that were at Christmas Eve, you know, the second chapter right at the birth narrative. 
Well, I've looked at that a little bit, obviously, <laughs> because I didn't want to be... Uh, I didn't want to be way ahead of it by the time we got to Christmas and therefore it'd be a little anticlimactic or I didn't want it to be way behind it and then Christmas itself will become anticlimactic. So I've looked at that, but you know as well as I do, I have no idea. I have no idea how far we're going to get. I don't know. There's a general idea that we might be able to be right around there by the time we get to Christmas, but we're just going to walk our way through these themes because these are so absolutely critical as we study this wonderful piece of history that Luke has given us by the agency of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to just work through these themes. I'll work through two this morning, and they're just rich, and they don't, they don't take much to look at, but we're going to sort of thumb our way around a little bit and see these themes. First of all, as I've already alluded to it, the first theme that Luke traces through this, as a Gentile writer, no less, is God's steadfast love or his covenant love. We sang about it earlier. His steadfast love. It is the Old Testament concept of his, you see it in your English translation sometimes, loving kindness. His hesed is the Hebrew word. His love which never fails. It never changes. It's always faithful. What he promises, he will do. What he has said is established and cannot change. And Luke draws our attention in his gospel to God's covenant love or his steadfast faithful love. Why? Because he always wants God's people to know that for those who are the remnant, for those who are in his elect people, for those who love Jesus Christ, and even prior to Christ, those who loved their God and waited for their Messiah, God's promises will not fail. They do come. So how does Luke trace the line of God's covenant love? Well, first of all, just very simply, he was familiar with the the Old Testament canon of scriptures, even as a Gentile. Now, I know he traveled with Paul, so he heard from the Old Testament a lot. But as he came to Christ, Luke then became very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and the promises given to God's people about his faithful love and a Messiah. In fact, in the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel, verse 44 It mentions the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Luke likes to record the actual categories of the Old Testament scriptures. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In chapter 16, he says the law and the prophets. He also says Moses and the prophets in chapter 16. He quotes mostly from the law, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes you'll hear it called the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament canon, Luke quotes from it ten times in his gospel. He quotes from the prophets seven times and from the Psalms seven times. Luke, in other words, was convinced that the arrival of the person of Christ and his redemptive work is based in the Jewish scriptures. So he's not some Greek invention. He's not to be equated with the Greek gods. When the Gentiles heard of Jesus, they were to equate him with the one who is spoken about in the Old Testament. And when he quotes the Old Testament in some places, he mentions the specific book when other gospel writers who are quoting Jesus talking about the Old Testament, they do not give the actual book. In Luke 20, for example, verse 42 Luke is quoting Jesus as saying, David himself says in the book of Psalms. 
David himself says, in the book of Psalms. It's interesting that Luke included in the book of Psalms because Mark's parallel passage just says that Jesus gave the statement, David says, in the power of the Holy Spirit or by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So here, Luke wants you to know exactly where it is. If this is going to a Gentile world, he wants you to know, hey, go back to the Old Testament scriptures. Check out the Old Testament scriptures. Read the Psalms. You know, of course we're New Covenant oriented. Of course we study the New Testament. But if you are a young, budding Christian mind and you don't go into the Old Testament to read the histories and the poetry and the prophets, you're making a big mistake. Because what you know in the New Testament about Christ is given depth and richness and color from the Old Testament. Luke knew that and he realized that and he loved that. Notice Luke chapter 3 verse 4. Luke adds the words of Isaiah the prophet. He adds the words of Isaiah the prophet. So he's speaking to Gentiles and he says, look, it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Very specific. He is clearly viewing Jesus' arrival and ministry as connected with the fulfillment of the law. That's what he wants his Gentile readers to know. When you see the birth narrative, know this. It is the arrival of the one whom the Old Testament spoke about. Don't separate them out. Don't disconnect them. Furthermore, you know how he does this? He connects the arrival of Jesus with worship, the worship of the Jews. Notice in chapter 1. The whole narrative opens with a temple scene. Chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. You have the temple mentioned in terms of the priesthood. And you have Aaron. These are references to what went on in the temple. The arrival of Jesus involved the the worship of God's people, the Jews. And notice, verse 9, Zechariah is serving according to the custom of the priesthood as he enters the sanctuary of the Lord and offers sacrifice. That's interesting. He, he is working according to the custom of the priesthood and he's in the sanctuary of the Lord offering a sacrifice. It's in that setting that the announcement of John the Baptist's birth came. And the whole birth narrative ends with a temple scene. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 records in verse 21 that when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And so here they are in the temple, another temple scene Luke draws our attention to. You wouldn't expect this with a Gentile. But he is honing us in from the very beginning of his narrative to the temple's connection or the worship of the Jewish people connected to what the Old Testament promise was of a Messiah. Now, if you doubt that, uh, the end of the narrative in chapter 2, verse 41, ends with Jesus as a 12-year-old staying behind in the temple, talking with the leaders of Israel. So here he is, Already born, here he is, a boy, and there's another temple scene that Luke alone records. It's interesting. The only Gentile gospel writer records 
another temple scene. And Jerusalem is highlighted. Since Jerusalem was understood as the center of Israel, the prophets had said they were looking for God to do a mighty act in Jerusalem. You see that in the beginning of chapter 40 of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2, comfort, O comfort my people, that there is going to be this act happening, this mighty act of salvation in Jerusalem or centered there. That happens again in Isaiah 52, in Isaiah 56, and even Jeremiah 31. The prophets were looking forward to a reappearance of God's mighty promises in the city of Jerusalem. And so that's why in chapter 2 of Luke's gospel, verse 38, you see that Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, was a prophetess. Notice what she says in verse 38 of Luke 2. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Man, Luke does not want his Gentile audience to miss that God's faithfulness is beginning to be manifest again as John the Baptist is announced, as They're working in the temple as they are worshiping in the center of God's people. It's in that place where people's hearts are soft to it. Just a few people, but soft. And notice what kind of lives they were living. This is very interesting. Zechariah and Elizabeth, according to chapter 1, were described, if you go back to the beginning, verse 6, they were both Righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Luke draws our attention to the standard of holiness. Look, if he's going to connect Jesus of Nazareth with the Old Testament prophets, he's connecting them with God's promises. If he's going to connect Jesus of Nazareth with the temple, he's connecting it with worship And Jesus will be the one who is worthy of real worship. Jesus is the one who will help them become real worshipers, John 4 says. If he's going to connect Jesus of Nazareth with the city of Jerusalem, it is because he wants us to know that this is the one who was promised, that the prophet said you should look for a new mighty act of God happening in Jerusalem. And if Luke is going to connect Jesus of Nazareth with holiness, then he will be the one that shows us how to actually be blameless. And so he describes Zechariah and Elizabeth as righteous. He also says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 24 with regard to Joseph and Mary. They acted according to what is stated in the law of the Lord. They were acting according to what is stated, verse 24, in the law of the Lord. They were devout. Look at verse 25 regarding Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And Anna, verse 37 of chapter 2, the prophetess, she was never leaving the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And Luke is tracing a line to holiness, to worship, to God's promises. 
He also connects this narrative with the promise of the Messiah. You say, how does he do that? John the Baptist's birth announcement and birth is mentioned here. Luke gives the strongest link between the ministry of Jesus and the Old Testament when he opens his gospel with the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist. Now, with your finger there, look at Matthew 11 for a moment and we'll make a very, very important connection. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John, that is John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And so as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. And this is what Jesus says to the crowds. Well, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? I mean, you heard about John preaching. What did you go out and think you were going to find? What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Someone without conviction? Someone who hadn't been sent by God? Someone who was just a loudmouth quack? No. What did you go out to see? Verse 8. A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. You went out to see someone who had a message and he got rid of all the accoutrements of life and all the comforts of life to fulfill his mission. That's what you saw. Verse 9, he asks it again. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Malachi chapter 3. I will send my messenger. Look at verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And look at verse 14. If you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. And if you have spiritual ears to hear it, you better listen up. You say, why is that important? Back to chapter 1 of Luke. Listen to what the angel says to Zacharias. Verse 13, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You'll give him the name John and you'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he'll drink no wine or liquor and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Here it is, 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children 
and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist wasn't the actual Elijah, but he was prophesied to be an end times Elijah, one who would come in the same power, the same powerful message, the forerunner. Luke is connecting us to the promise of the Messiah by showing the circumstances of John. He wants the Gentile world to know, hey, that guy, John the Baptist, was no lunatic. He was prophesied by Malachi and he arrived as the Elijah and even Jesus said the same when John was done with his ministry and in prison. What a connection. I'll tell you something else interesting about the way Luke does this. One commentator called Luke's gospel the singing gospel. Did you know that in Israel, according to Exodus um, and Judges chapter 4, it was really the, the priestly line and the prophetic line that were the ones who, when there was a new song given or a new message given or a new revelation from God given, there were songs that burst forth from the priestly and the prophet line, prophetic line. They were the ones writing the new songs in Israel. But for 400 years... Prophets were silent and there were no new songs being written in Israel. Whatever songs they sang were the chants of the old. There was no new promise being fulfilled, no, no new activity by God. It was silent. It seemed hopeless. There was no new music. No new music. But Luke records what happens when God begins to act and Jesus comes on the scene There's music all over the place. I read Zechariah's prophecy. Notice he was praising God, it says, verse 64. He began to speak in praise of God. And this is no doubt a song that that began to be sung in Israel. And he begins to sing. And then you see when Jesus' birth is announced to Mary... She begins to sing in chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Mary writes a song. And then Simeon, chapter 2, 29 to 32, writes a song. And then the angel, while speaking to the shepherds and announcing the birth, sings the Gloria, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom God is pleased. There is music in Luke's gospel. The verb rejoice is found in this gospel more than any other book in the New Testament. Uses the word joy all over the place. When when an outcast pagan like Zacchaeus is saved, Luke mentions joy. When the lost sheep are sought after by the shepherd, leaving those behind and going to find the lost sheep and the lost coin. There is joy. There's joy in heaven when sinners are found, Luke records. The gospel even ends with rejoicing. It's just amazing how Luke is connecting us with the prophetic office. He's connecting us with the people in Israel that used to write songs. He's connecting us with the songwriting tradition of Israel. And he's a Gentile. You know, I, I appreciate all that has come down to us in the way of music. 
I appreciate that. And, and some people say, oh, I love the tradition. Of course you should love the tradition. It's wonderful. And, and in fact, hymnology, up until maybe the last 10 years, hymnology really wasn't, um, at least hymnology in the last 100 years hasn't been all that theologically rich. The hymns of 150 to 400 years ago were exceedingly deep theologically and have been passed down to us with great truths that we could learn. And it has been said that such rich theology was in those hymns of the Reformation that if you didn't have your Bibles, if if the government took your Bible away, you could sing the hymns and still know your theology comprehensively. But then there was a time when there really wasn't much great hymnology being written. And even in the last 10 years, you've seen this resurgence in Reformed theology and an understanding of the gospel, and you see these new hymns being written. I love that. Look, if there are no new hymns, there's no new song in the hearts of new people being saved, right? There have to be new things. And so Luke connects us to the Old Testament, connects us to its worship, connects us to the central place where holiness was manifested, connects us to the place where People were waiting for the Messiah. Luke connects Jesus to all of that in his gospel more than any of the other gospel writers. And that leads very quickly to a second theme. A second theme, and that's God's saving power. God's saving power. You know what? Luke loved the terminology of salvation. He loved the terms. In fact, in in probably what has become the most famous Christmas card quote, it comes from the account when the angel announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds. You remember it when the shepherds were on the hillside. Chapter 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. It may be a famous Christmas card text, but it is a word that Luke loves. He loves the word Savior. He loves the word group, salvation. He loves the word save. He loves its past tense, saved. And you see it in the gospel, and you see it in his second work of the church's history, the book of Acts. Savior, salvation, being saved. He loves it. He records that Mary spoke of it in chapter 1, verse 47, when she began to sing. Notice verse 46 of chapter 1, and Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary, by the way, was not sinless. To imagine that she was sinless and could say that she had a need of a Savior would be the same as saying Jesus had need of a Savior because he was, in fact, sinless. I know if you grew up in those traditions, it's easy to imagine that she might have been sinless. Certainly she was honored. She even says that in this very song. But she wasn't sinless. In fact, she says that her spirit, her inner man, her inner human being, her inner heart has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Luke records that because he wants everyone in the Gentile world to know there's a Savior. He's come to rescue. And in the book of Acts, Peter, while preaching in Acts chapter 5, says this, He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior 
to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Being a savior was connected with the one who could forgive your sins. Luke loved the concept that your sins could be forgiven. Man, he was on the outside. As Ephesians 2 says, he wasn't a part of the commonwealth of Israel. Jews were near God. He was far off like the Gentile nations. Without hope in this world. Pagan, of pagan nations, not even surrounding Jerusalem, not even a proselyte, maybe just steeped in idolatry. And God sent a Savior. Oh, how Luke loved the word because it meant the forgiveness of sins. And how powerful was God in doing the saving? He was sent as a prince. He's the ruler of salvation. He rules over redemption. From the offspring of this man, Paul says in Acts 13, according to the promise, God has brought it to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So even when Paul was preaching and in the synagogue in Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, he says the same thing. According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior. He loved that word. He also loved its uh, other form, which we translate salvation. And so he records Zacharias speaking of this salvation in Luke chapter 1, verse 69. I read it earlier. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. He's not talking there about political protection. He's not talking about military protection. He's talking about a time when God will save the earth and all of his people from evil, from all enemies, supernatural and natural. A time when peace will reign on the earth. Luke loved the concept of salvation being promised and then fulfilled. Verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. Here it is again, by the forgiveness of their sins. How does it come? By the tender mercy of our God. Luke loved the idea that salvation was connected with sins forgiven and that was connected with the mercy of God. Listen, if you face God without Mercy, you will face God without forgiveness. If you face God without forgiveness, you will face God without salvation. Luke loved it. Notice chapter 2, verse 30. Simeon says when he burst forth, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Luke mentions in chapter 3, verse 6, all flesh will see the salvation of God. He's quoting Isaiah. And I mentioned Zacchaeus earlier in Luke 19. He marvels. Here's an outcast, a betrayer of God's people, taking taxes from his own people. Jesus goes to his house. And what does Luke record? Salvation has come to this house. I mean, there were the Pharisees grumbling. Oh, come on, he's going to a sinner's house. The point of the story of Zacchaeus isn't that God is compassionate. The point is, in contrast to a self-righteous Pharisee or the self-righteous Jewish crowd grumbling, Zacchaeus, who was considered by them an outcast, receives salvation. Why? He repented. He saw himself as a sinner. He listened to Jesus' message of salvation and he believed it. Luke mentions it. He likes it. Today, salvation's come to this house. Look, if salvation can come to an outcast Jew tax collector, 
than it can come to a Gentile, can it? That's what he's saying. And in his history of the early church, he records Peter saying these words in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's that terminology. And when he was preaching to that synagogue in Antioch, he said, Brethren, sons of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. He will later say in Acts 13, 47, Thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. Luke loved the idea that salvation could go anywhere, break through any barriers, that God actually wanted to take it to the end of the earth. He loved it. Now we don't need programs for evangelism. You just need to know the heart of Luke. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Of course, it'll break through any barrier. Why do we send missionaries still 2,000 years later? Because there are places where people need the light. They need to be saved. We sit around here with our Savior and do nothing? That, that makes no sense. Made no sense to Luke. I was talking to Dr. Zemick this morning. We were talking about how much material Luke must have compiled and how it must have been a difficult task to cull it down. Because I was saying to Dr. Zemick, I don't know how I'm going to get through all this material in one sermon. How am I going to do this? He said, hey, that's nothing. Think about Luke. (laughs) Oh, thank you very much. I feel like uh, I've got nothing to complain about. Luke had compiled all all that thought about salvation. And even at the end of the history of the church, which he compiled, he got to the end of his entire work, handing it to Theophilus. And in chapter 28 of Acts, verse 28, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. Man, he had bold confidence to record Paul's words there. The Gentiles will listen. He even loved the word saved. When he was in Simon the... When Jesus was in Simon the Pharisee's house, Luke records what happened when the sinful prostitute came in there, wept on Jesus' feet. What does Jesus say to her at the end? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Salvation and peace were connected in Luke's mind. Jesus says, and Luke records it in Luke 9, 24, whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save his life in eternity. Chapter 9, verse 56, the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke records that. He records Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Be saved from this perverse generation, he says in Acts 2, 40. And on that first day, when the church was born, Luke records in Acts 2.47 these words, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. He loved the word saved. Salvation. Savior. Do we? I mean, we're, we're coming like a freight train into the Christmas season. We shouldn't be changing terminology here. We shouldn't be asking people, hey, are you churched? We should be saying, are you, are you aware there's a Savior who will rescue you? 
Are you saved? Saved from what? Glad you asked. We say, are you a believer? We should say, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you a believer in the Savior? Have you experienced salvation? Which is to say, have you experienced forgiveness of your sins? Have you experienced the tender mercy of your God? This is Luke's terminology. I'm going to close with chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1 and just watch what happens. This is absolutely amazing. Luke sets in contrast what was going on at the time. It was Israel. It was the ordinary routine. It was, it's actually rather forensic and clinical. Listen to this, verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It just sounds like it's such routine. Like normal, every time, here was Zacharias doing his service. He was chosen. There he is performing his service in the appointed order of the division according to the custom of the priestly office. I mean, Luke just writes it out. He's being meticulous, but he is setting up a contrast. They were not aware that God was about to take all that Old Testament Wonder, majesty, promise, prophetic word, and explode onto the scene. What were the people doing when Zacharias was in there? Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So there they are. This is great staging. And Luke wants the Gentile world to know. Look, as worship was continuing by a few faithful righteous people in the center of God's people, Jerusalem, in the place where they worshipped in the temple, according to the law of God, which they had still been reading, regardless of how many Jews had forgotten, regardless of the sense of hopelessness that there would be no promise fulfilled, regardless of the 400 years of silence, regardless of the captivity to the Romans, regardless of all of the difficulty and struggle, and no matter how many self-righteous, unbelieving Jews led the nation, there were a few. There they were in the routine all the people around praying in verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This, this had not happened. This, this was unprecedented. This is shocking. An angel of the Lord We're just coming to the temple. We're just performing our service. We're just still waiting. The waiting certainly is going to keep going on. There's not going to be any real, real advent. No, Luke says this is how it happened. An angel of the Lord appeared to him. And just to be specific, this isn't some ghostly apparition. Just to be specific, he was standing right over there to the right of the altar of incense. I mean, when Zacharias finally had his tongue loosed, that's what he said. Because I'm sure they were asking, where was he? I'll tell you where he was. Right there by the 
standing to the right of the altar of incense. There he was. This is stunning. Luke includes this narrative because he wants you to know when the light of this great salvation, when the arrival of this great Savior, when the message of this great redemptive saving and rescue came on the scene. And he's writing to a Gentile, as a Gentile. And he wants us to know, don't you dare lose sight of God's saving power and steadfast covenant love. So here it is, beloved, 2,000 years later. What about your daily life? Is he as fresh a savior in your heart and life and daily walk as he was that day bursting on the scene in the temple service standing to the right of the altar. Is Savior a word you don't use much? Salvation a reality you don't think about much? Is hope thin in your heart and your mind? Luke says, look, I'm going to give you the account of how it happened. And I want you to know all through this gospel, God's saving power and His covenant love. And what he indicates here is, we'll cover next week the third theme, and that's God's personal presence. God's personal presence. In these early accounts, the Holy Spirit's all over the place. He's all over the gospel, but he's especially all over these birth accounts. The Spirit of God's doing this with Mary. The Spirit of God is saying this, saying this through this person. The Spirit of God is prophesying through this person. It is the personal, intimate presence of God that is the dawn of the eschatological age, the dawn or inauguration of that time when the gospel would go to the world and Jesus Christ will soon return. That's why Zacharias was stunned. It was so intimate. It was so loud when it had been silent. It was so rich when it had been, at least in Israel, forgotten to a large degree. God's personal presence, that's for next time. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Lord, thank you. What an amazing history and you're not ever working according to our timetable but you have such wonderful purpose in all of it. Lord, we are coming upon this great season as we begin this study and you've made it clear even through this Gentile gospel writer that your promises are true. All your promises are true. And wherever we read of the depth and riches of those promises in the Old Testament and what they pointed to in Christ, whenever we study the wonders of the new covenant ministry of the Spirit and in the time of the church, whether we think about the 2,000 years of history we've seen since as the gospel has spread worldwide, just as you promised, and whether we're reading about your imminent return where you will bring about righteousness throughout the whole earth. 
we see the connection. We don't mistake the connection and we have 2,000 years more history to look at. Lord, we seek your forgiveness this morning. We're sorry that the wonder of our salvation and the beauty of those terms like Savior, Rescuer, Redeemer have only been on our lips sometimes when we sing in the church. They should be the permeation of our hearts all day, every day, all week. In all our relationships, we are saved. We are those who have been given salvation and forgiveness of sins in your tender mercy. We are those who know intimately a Savior. And that day when you announced it to the shepherds, that day there was born for us a Savior. So we thank you for coming. We thank you for inspiring Luke to write. We thank you that 2,000 years later the gospel has reached us in the Gentile world. We thank you that you've been patient. We thank you that these texts remind us These themes ingrain it in us that Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, was the fulfillment of the promises announced by angels, the way prepared by the new covenant Elijah, John the Baptist, the end times prophet, whose birth was also foretold and announced by angels. And we see that you're the one who can make us true worshipers. You're the one who shows us real holiness, makes us truly righteous by covering us with yours and then transforming us by your Spirit's power to become like you. Lord, may we trace these themes not only through the Scriptures but in our lives. If someone's here today lost, a rebel, without hope, We pray that salvation has reached their heart today and that you will, by your mercy, open their eyes to the wonderful realities expressed here even by this Gentile historian and lover of the Savior, Luke. Shatter the hearts of the proud even in our midst this morning. We pray for your sake. Amen.